And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by his grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These are the words of our Lord. I once heard a, uh, a widely traveled preacher one time say that in all of his many travels around the globe, there was one conviction that was absolutely universal among the audiences to whom he spoken. And that was simply this. Things are not as they ought to be. That was it. It was just one singular idea. Everyone, he said, no matter where he went, no matter part of the world, no matter what religious background, no matter what exposure you had to any measure of religious teaching, everybody had an opinion on how the world ought to be run. Every single person. And, and I suspect that even at you know, your tender ages of being in your late teens or early 20s or so, you've had that moment where you thought to yourself, this is just not right. Something about this is just not right. Um, you know, one of, one of the distinct sort of, uh, I, I guess, uh, non-pleasures that I get to uh, be about the business of is funerals. I don't know how many funerals you've been to uh, uh, yet at this particular time in your life. Uh, but over the holidays, I actually got a chance to attend um, Peyton Houchin's uh, funeral. Some of you knew Peyton uh, before he had died. I'll be honest with you, I have rarely been as conflicted as I was about a funeral as it was in that particular experience that weekend. But I'm telling you, the weight in the air of that moment, of that young man's funeral, screamed, this is not right. Kids should not outlive their parents. It was on the face of every single person that was there. Um, I actually got a chance to preside and preach at my grandfather's funeral uh, just about four or five uh, years ago. And to be honest with you, that, that was a little bit of an easier funeral to attend to. Um, because when you go to that, my, my grandfather was 93 years old when he passed away. And when we go to funerals like that, we walk around and console ourselves with things like, well, you know, he lived a full and happy life. And we sort of somehow feel better about that. But you know, tell that to my grandmother, who on the very next Christmas Eve sort of confided in my father, you know, I'm just so lonely. Look, have you encountered something in life yet that makes you look around and say, this is not right. Something is wrong in this world. Sometimes either out there or oftentimes in here, in your own heart. Look y'all, we're trying this semester as we look at the book of Ephesians to get our spiritual bearings. In other words, we're trying to look at the world the way in which God looks at the world. And so Ephesians presents us with a God who has a goal. A God who up until Jesus came had kept his, um, his cosmic intentions for the universe 
somewhat hidden, somewhat cloaked in a mystery, Paul says. But now, now that Jesus has ascended, he has made it absolutely known. He's come out. He's let it known exactly what he's up to. But here's the question that we're going to look at tonight. What is wrong with the world? What is that's wrong with the world? What is not right? And the question that I want you to grapple with is, how does God frame that question? What is his opinion of the things that are wrong with the world in this pattern that he's established for the world? What's wrong with it? Well, <laughs> unfortunately, the answer to that question is that man is dead. The reason for the problems in the world in God's calculus is because mankind is dead in his sins and his trespasses. That's the first point. But it ends with good news. Because it's not just true that man is dead, but it's also true that God is gracious. Because the two things I want to set in front of you tonight to consider here before we head off to the game, right? Look, first point. Paul looks and says that the reason why the world had to be dealt with in the way in which it did is because mankind is dead in his trespasses and sins. In other words, the descriptive word that God uses for mankind outside of the grace of God is dead. He is dead. And to be honest with you, this can be a controversial word. You'll have people that will get in all kinds of arguments with each other about what that means. And you have people say, well, what can a dead man do? You know, is a dead man able to make choices in life? Is a, is a dead man able to, uh, uh, to act spiritually? But that's to totally miss the point of what Paul is saying here. Paul is not talking about inactivity. He's not saying that prior to becoming a Christian, you were just uh, lethargic. You didn't do anything with your time. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is he's describing a walking death. He's describing dead men walking in Ephesians chapter 2. And it's the description of us. Speaking of Tim Keller, he makes a great point in a sermon on a different passage. When he says that for most people, our attempts to understand what it means to be a Christian oftentimes gets dissolved. You ever notice this? For some people, they look at Christianity as if it's a purely intellectual thing. Oh, you've come to embrace Christianity as your world religion's choice. Uh, for other people, it's kind of a cultural thing. We talk about, we know I grew up Christian, which is kind of a cultural thing. Uh, other people talk about it institutionally. Oh, I'm a Christian. Really? I'm a Muslim. In other words, it's like a club that you belong to that you just happen to choose. But being a Christian, though, Keller says, is not a matter of degrees. It's not a matter of sort of what you assent to. Being a Christian is a radical concept because it gets down to the essence of who you are and the essence in a place that ultimately defines you. In other words, it's the very foundation of your identity that Christianity gets to the root. And for that reason, we can speak of the fact that you either are or are not a Christian. In other words, you have either taken on this rather radical new way of seeing yourself in the world, or you have not, because of how fundamental this is to who we are. So that when a person becomes a Christian, there's something that gets a hold of them at the very center of the way that you look at stuff. And things that before were these kind of vague, kind of spiritual abstractions, they somehow start to take shape. They almost become solid because you're so used to viewing the world through that particular way. And the level of life that you experience there is so different from before that honestly you were, you were in a living death prior to. That if you were to compare 
how Jesus has transformed me now to what I used to be before, before it was a living death. That's what Paul suggested. Look, think about it this way. <clears throat> if you think about it, there are sort of levels of things that we would call <clears throat> alive, right? You have sort of a, a vegetable or <clears throat> plant life on one level. Uh, the next level would be animal life, creatures, you know, uh, breathing creatures. And then you have sort of human life, right? And the grades kind of go on up. And if you think about it, every type of life that you experience needs to be in accordance with how you're made. In other words, if you're a human being, but you're only functioning on the level of an animal, let's say you have the, you have the self-realization of, say, a toad, okay? You would look at that person and say, well, that's subhuman. You're not experiencing what you were created to be. You're a human being. You're meant to be human. It would be subhuman for you to live in existence like a, uh, like a frog, right? Why is it that we call people who end up in terrible accidents? But what do we say about those people that, that totally lose any kind of functionality as a human being? We say that they become a vegetable. They're in a vegetative state, right? Why? Because the level of life is so different in that context. Look, y'all, Paul is saying that what Jesus has come and brought you is so astounding and is so high above uh, what you used to experience that it's as far as it is from, from a living death to someone being a living, breathing person. That's the difference he's come and made in all of us, right? And so from God's point of view, he looks and says, you're not even alive. There's death. There's death all around you. To be subhuman, a walking dead. And it gets expressed to us in three different ways. And this is hinted at in the passage that I want you to take a look at. Three different ways in which we see this deadness kind of coming up. The first way is in decay. We know that mankind is dead because there is decay in the world. Decay is a breaking down. That's why Nixon says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That's an interesting way of speaking. Look, when a corpse dies, it decays. And what happens to that corpse as it does so is ugly to us. It's grotesque. The thought of a dead body is, is, is horrifying. It's disgusting for us, right? Death will always lead to disintegration, to things coming apart. Why else are we fascinated by, uh, by um, you know, zombie films, right? Zombies, uh, the living dead. It's grotesque. It's frightening to us, right? What Paul is saying is, is that sin has done to your soul what death does to a body. It makes it, it, makes it gross. It makes it disintegrate. It does the same thing that dirt does to your clothes. Guys, do you remember when you were, uh, when you were really young, you used to get these big holes in your knees of your pants? Because you, you know, they got dirt, right? You get these giant gaping holes in your jeans because you were always on your knees in the dirt. Dirt deteriorates. It pulls apart. I actually have very vivid memories of almost every funeral that I've been to where they display the body. Have you been to one of these funerals yet? And I'll be honest with you, it's a, like if you've been to one, you, didn't, you don't forget it. I can almost name you every single one that I've seen. You have a memory of a dead body that you've seen. Why? Because when we see those things, you walk up to it and there's, there's just a not rightness about it. You, you stare at the person that you used to know and you look at it and you keep waiting for their chest to rise, to breathe. And it looks like they're getting ready to it in any second, but they don't. And you walk away from it 
not necessarily being grossed out or sort of weird out, but it's just, it's wrong. That's what Paul is saying, that sin, trespasses and sin, has done to us. And he looks and says that this is the way in which God looks at us before we're brought to life. God sees in us what we see when we look at a dead body. That's the idea. Our trespasses and our sins, he says, have begun to erode life. It's disintegrating what he created the world to look like. Sin in that sense is into everything. This is the reason why Newton says that we followed the course of this world. See that in verse 2? What is the course of this world? What's he talking about? He's saying that if you are in the midst of your sins and trespasses, you are following along with a course that is disintegrating everything. Everything. And guess what? You're part of it. You are contributing to that decay. Everything you look at, political oppression, bureaucratic tyranny, materialism, hunger, poverty, racial discrimination, injustice. Y'all, all of those things are deteriorating the life that God intended us to have. They are alienations of the system that he set up. And the bottom line that Jesus is saying, Paul is saying is this. If you are spiritually dead, then you are a co-conspirator. You are a partner with it all. If you're spiritually dead. Look, what is the difference? How about this? What is the difference between the sexually degrading way in which pornography, pornography frames femininity and, and a despotic regime of a world dictator like in what's going on in Egypt or what was going on in Egypt in terms of mass, putting mass people under oppression? What's the difference between those two? Paul's answer is nothing. It's only different kind of Terrible dictators in other countries, and when they oppress people, they bring harm, they pull people's lives apart. Guess what? Every single sin and trespass, Paul is saying, is pulling life apart. It's deteriorating the universe. Look, y'all, what do, you, what do you do with your life? Is it making the world better or is it making the world worse? Interesting thought. Decay is the first thing. Second thing is this death is brought out in slavery. Slavery is a huge deal. Look at verse 3 there. Verse 3 says, among whom we once all live in the passions of our flesh. Underline that word passions because that's a big one. That's a Greek word. Uh, the Greek word is epithumia. Again, I'm trying to justify my three years of seminary for you in this series. Usually the word epithumia is translated the word lust. The lust of the flesh, the Bible talks about, right? But what is lust? Have you ever thought about that? Why do we refer to something as lust or lustful? Usually we talk about lusting when we're referring to a desire that has gotten so powerful that it has more control over us than we have over it. Does that follow? I lusted after this thing. It took me over. So what Paul is saying is, is you can tell that there is spiritual deadness in you when all of a sudden it manifests itself in a form of slavery. It's slavery. In other words, it takes you a while to realize. And I think college for many of you is the first time it ever really occurs to you. It takes you a while to realize that once you start down the road with an evil desire, there comes a point when that evil desire has you much more than you have it. You know what I'm talking about? Where all of a sudden you're not in near as much control as you thought that you were. That's slavery. That's addiction. And Paul says it's deadness. 
And it actually keeps us... I mean, this is a question for you to ask. Do you have any real freedom in life in the face of your own lusts? Is there freedom there? How is that struggle with that sin coming for you? How's that working out for you in your own strength? Paul says it's deadness. It's at the heart of human being outside of God's grace. Thirdly, there's condemnation. I'll be honest with you, the chilling part of this passage is in the verse 3, where it says that we are by nature children of wrath. Yikes. What does that mean? What does it mean to be wrath's child? I am the child of wrath. What does that mean? Look, y'all, it means that we belong to judgment. I wonder how many of y'all have ever heard the old uh, story about a kiss-up in the court of King Dionysus II by the name of Damocles. You ever heard the story of Damocles? Damocles was in the court of King Dionysus and was sort of complimenting him and sort of flattering him and saying, oh, how wonderful it must be to be the king. And so King Dionysus, getting sick of him just sort of being a suck-up, looks at him and says, well, maybe you'd like to be king. And Damocles is like, I'd love to be. And so he comes up to the throne and he has a seat in the king's chair. He suddenly has all the authority that the king has. But before too long, he glances up. And what he realized was that the king had hung from the ceiling a large, heavy sword hanging right over his head. And it was hung there by a tiny, thin, the old legend says, horse's hair, waiting for the slightest break to bring death to the king. And ever since that time, people have spoken of the sword of Damocles. It's like my life has become a sword of Damocles. In other words, I'm walking around at any moment waiting for everything to fall to pieces. And what Paul looks and says is, is if you are dead in your sin and trespasses, the sword of Damocles is real. There's nothing that looks for a person who is dead in their sins other than deadness. It's emptiness. It's loss. There is no happy ending when there's death hanging over me in that particular way. At every single turn. I'll be honest with you. I know that sounds primitive to most of you. You're thinking to yourself, now please, let us. A little dark. You know, guilt going to hang over. We're supposed to be getting rid of that guilt, right? Look, I'll be honest with you. I feel like the most thoughtful people in our culture are the ones who know that there is a haunting sense of wrongness hanging over them. They know it. They know that there's a danger there. And I think our culture is confirming every single instinct. It's confirming. I mean, we are officially the most therapeutic, medicated culture that society and the world has ever known. We know this. There's something wrong. Everyone knows that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Not just out there, but also in here. So, y'all, my first point, and it's my largest, longest point, is that if you want to get your bearings with God's perspective on you, you've got to see decay. You've got to own the slavery. And you've got to deal with that condemnation that's all around you. It's the only path through. Now, second point though. It doesn't end there. Because he goes on to say that therefore God is gracious. I know that it's out of fashion to speak about sin this much. But what I want to challenge you is the fact, is, is this is the fact, that you actually will not understand God's grace until you take a hard look at the problem of sin. Look, I have a lot of conversations with people who wrestle with what we might call assurance of salvation. You know what I'm talking about with that? 
like, do I really know? Like, how can I know that I really am a Christian? I mean, there's a lot of people that I can think of who say they're a Christian, but I look at the way they live and I think, eh, not so sure, right? But then you look and say, well, who am I to judge? How, how do I know? Can I just suggest to you that one of the main reasons why we suffer from a lack of assurance is because we didn't go through the path that Paul leads us through. You will not have assurance of God's grace as long as you think that you did something to get that grace. And the reason why Paul looks and says, let me think about what you were like before you came to know Jesus. You were dead. Until that lands in you, until all of a sudden it begins to be something that you own inside of you, His grace is not grace. His grace is a favor that He borrowed to me because I wasn't as bad as somebody else. Or I tried really hard, or I was really sincere when I asked you into my heart to be my personal Lord and Savior. That's why we don't have assurance. It's because it's still resting on our shoulders. And yet Paul comes in and goes, hey, let's establish this. You contributed zilch to this equation. The only thing that you gave to God in the transaction of your salvation was your screwed up life. Right? That's all you have. And you're not in the water sort of gasping for air or God save you. <laughs> you're on the bottom, deceased, <laughs> spiritually speaking. That's where you are. Assurance is typically elusive to people who have very shallow superficial, superficial views of sin. And what happens is you came to college and you begin to look and be like, you know what? I don't know anybody else who has stayed up late at night trying to wrestle through their, uh, their, um, their personal guilt feelings. I don't have anybody else in my life who's feeling badly for the night after night random sexual encounter that we have. Nobody else is feeling this bad. And so what happens is you suddenly just walk away from Christianity. Why? Because it didn't work for you. Because you never heard the first message. You were dead. Deceased. Nothing there. And the truth is it means that we might never, never even have been a Christian in the first place. Look, y'all. We have to own that deadness in order to understand His grace. I would even say in order to feel the great power of verse 4. Look, y'all. The first two words in verse 4 is what every cadaver, spiritual cadaver in this room needs to hear tonight. You ready for it? But God. Yes, it's bad. As a matter of fact, it's worse than you know. Whatever apprehension you have of your own spiritual deadness tonight is nothing compared to what's actually there. But God. But God. In other words, Paul looks and goes, there is a way through. There's a way out. And guess what? It rests completely on him. And Paul uses three verbs to describe it. Did you notice these? He says, first of all, God made us alive. Secondly, he raised us up. And then thirdly, he made us sit with him. Do you hear those things? And what he's referring to are actually historical events that happened in the life of Jesus. You may not have noticed this, right? <clears throat> we know that, first of all, if he was raised, made us alive, that's the resurrection. He raised us up, that's the ascension. And then he made us sit, that's what we call the session. It's Jesus' three things he did at the end of his life. He rose again, he ascended into heaven, and now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. This, by the way, is why we did the study of the Apostles' Creed last semester, right? Remember how we talked about that? The third day he rose again from the dead, 
He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Paul is describing things that Jesus did. Or is he? You see, you'll notice that Paul in this passage is not talking about Jesus, but he's talking about us. He's talking about Christians. Look, y'all, we are now to what is without question one of the central tenets of teaching about Christianity from the Apostle Paul. If you want to know what the Apostle Paul was into the most, here we are. It is the doctrine that we refer to, and you just need to hear this phrase at least once in your life. The doctrine of union with Christ. In other words, what Paul looks and says is basically this. In order to really understand what it means to be a Christian, to boil it down to its most basic constituency, you've got to realize that Jesus and his people are so intimately connected, that they are so powerfully joined to a level unimaginable in human relationships, that what is true of Jesus can actually be said to be true of us. Because what was true of him was maybe true of us. Did you catch that? Went past it too quick. Let's do it again. To understand union with Christ means to say that we are so intimately joined that God is going to look at me and does look at me with the same wellspring of love and joy and delight that he has when he sees his own son. Sometimes I like to imagine. Have you ever thought about that? Like Jesus, he dies on the cross. Uh, he's in the tomb. He rises again. He appears to all these people before Pentecost. And all of a sudden, he's at, or, uh, up until uh, the ascension, he ascends into heaven, right? Can you imagine what the homecoming was like between Jesus and his Father in heaven at that moment? I mean, what kind of tidal wave of love met Jesus at that very moment? Because the thing that blew Paul's mind is that that might as well be what you are in store for. Look, y'all, this is the reason why the Bible talks so weird the way which it does. It's trying to get you to see the world through God's eyes. Because in God's view, your identity is not based upon all of the things that tonight you're trying to base it on. Your looks, your attractiveness, your family connections, your money, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your cleverness, your social ease, because you just kind of got that way with people. God looks and says, I'm not going to look at your identity on the basis of any of those things. I'm only going to look on it based upon what I see in my own son. Did you catch that? I'm going to look at you. I'm going to consider your identity as being exactly the same as what I think about Jesus, my own son. And so all you have to do is do the math. Okay, what does God the Father think of his son? Well, guess what? God the Father had two speaking parts in the New Testament. Remember this? And in both of those times, you know what he's doing? He's doting over his son. At Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration, God the Father gets his first couple of speaking parts in the New Testament. And each time, you know what he says? This is my beloved son in whom I am so pleased. In whom I am so pleased. Look, y'all, there is no difference between what God feels 
when he looks at his son and what registers with him when he looks at you. Has that thought ever occurred to you? Because if it hasn't, my guess is, is that you have no idea what to do with verse 10. And we blow right past this verse so quickly, but look at it. Look what it says here in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. What a terrible translation of that word. That word is actually the Greek word poiema, from which we get the word poem. You realize what Paul is saying? He says, we are God's work of I don't have any of your artists here, but I mean, has there been a moment where you were absolutely captivated and blown away by something that was just objectively beautiful? I mean, have you ever cried at the beauty and the longing of a very well-crafted movie that you walked out of and thought to yourself, all right, it's going to take me two weeks to get over that movie because of how much it impacted you. Were there ever those moments? I've been thinking of ways all day long to illustrate this. It was like the first time I ever listened to Miles Davis kind of blue all the way through. <laughs> uh, or the first time you ever do Dark Side of the Moon from beginning to end without stopping. Have you ever stopped and experienced, or, or the first time I ever saw a copy, it wasn't the real thing, of Michelangelo's David. And you see the majesty and the vastness of that work of art. Have you ever had a moment where you've looked at something and stood in awe of it because of the weight of its beauty? Because if you've ever had just a tiny sliver of that sense of being blown away, multiply that times a million. And it is what the Heavenly Father sees when he looks at you in Christ. Now look, come anywhere close to that. Come anywhere close to that in the sort of way in which we view our own lives. Construct for yourselves an identity that's going to be based upon the fact that doggone by the time I'm 30 years old, I'll have my first million. Or an identity that's built on the fact of like, oh, please, God, will you please just make him love me again? I mean, it just looks, it looks poverty stricken compared to what God looks and says, you don't understand. I have taken a dead person and not just like raised him up to look like a walking zombie, but I've raised up a work of art that every time I look at it, it blows my mind. Uh, look, y'all. I'm asking if you're a Christian tonight. And by the way, I'm not asking whether you read your Bible or whether you go to church, but I'm asking what criteria of judgment do you use when you look at what you call you? What criteria of judgment do you use? Because Paul looks and says two things. You want to see my view? You want to see the view that I got, that I want to tell you about? Number one, <laughs> you're dead. <laughs> you're dead. And there's deadness all over your life. But you know what? God is gracious. And by gracious, he does not mean that he tolerates you. He rejoices over you with singing because of what beauty he has seen that he has created in you because it's the beauty that's in his own son. 
Nothing comes close. Nothing comes close to that. So, consider it an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you waltz us into something like that? There's not a person here tonight who doesn't feel the pain of deadness in us. For some of us, it's a deadness that we've known because it was made known to us years ago when we first met you. And we realize that you've been trying to dig it out ever since. For others of us, it's kind of the first time. And we're not even really sure that we saw you before. So Lord Jesus, what we're asking is that we can tonight come and see you. Because if the Father is looking at you with that much love, if we could somehow be in you, if we could trade places with you, we might be the recipients of that same kind of love. Lord Jesus, that will only happen if you work here tonight by your Spirit. By definition, if we are dead people, we need you to make the first move. So Holy Spirit, would you fall upon us in great Pentecostal power and bring dead people back to life because we got a vision of what Jesus had really done. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.